It's now time to go around the nation in Division Three football. And here on first down and goal from the one is Lavelle Coppage in untouched for the touchdown. No, maybe the easiest touchdown Lavelle Coppage has ever scored. Burke looking to throw, looking in the end zone, looking for Denton, and he's got him for the touchdown. Each week, those who know Division Three football break down the weekend. There are several teams that seem to have established themselves as elite, and as we get into this postseason, it's going to be, uh, I think, pretty exciting to watch which ones emerge. I don't I don't think we can say, okay, these two teams are, this should definitely meet in the stag bowl or these four teams should definitely meet in the final four. I think it's gonna be um, you know pretty exciting five weeks of playoffs. From the record breakers. Well Patty's been a guy who's averaged eight yards a carry all season. He's been a big play guy and if you're a frequent listener to the podcast, you, you know this is not the first time that we've had occasion to mention Western Connecticut Connecticut State or Octavius McCoy. It's actually his third consecutive five touchdown game to the surprises on the field one just out of the blue makes me go what the hell was that wartburg wow congratulations that's a heck of a way to get into the second round to the surprises off the field for the first time in a few years not surprised maybe pleasantly surprised that uh, all eight at large teams that we projected actually got in it it seems to me like the ncaa actually followed their own rules correctly you even hear from those on the sidelines. You know, we had no idea where the record set. I knew he was probably over 400. You know, just by coincidence, we were up two scores late, and uh, you know, he, he had a carry to the sideline, and I'm like, let's get him out of here. We don't want to get him hurt for next week. There is only one place to turn to, the only show that covers the entire Division Three football nation, D3Football.com's Around the Nation podcast. I don't think you, you can argue it now, Pat. You have two dominant teams at the top of Division Three. And here are your hosts, Pat Coleman and Keith McMillan. So last week, there were a lot of blowouts. So we focused on the big picture. We focused on, you know, who were the elite teams and where the break was between some of the super elite and the elite and the great teams in Division Three. This year, hey, there's actual intrigue this year, this week even. Actual intrigue on the, uh, on the field. Uh, top 10 upset. Uh, three other top 25 teams lose, um, you know, uh, Bethel down at the half, stuff like that. Just a much more interesting week across the board, but Keith, it really has to be that Linfield game. Uh, you know, there's that point with uh, three minutes into the fourth quarter, uh, Willamette, I'm skipping a whole bunch just to get to this point, Willamette goes up by 17, and then Linfield with two scores in the span of like 20 seconds comes back and makes it a, a three-point game once again, and it looked like Linfield was going to come back and uh, and take it and uh, hand their arch rivals another loss. Yeah, you you kind of assume, especially watching it from uh, afar, as you see that that score multiply. You know, first the the seventeen points is when uh, whatever other game you're paying attention attention to at that point, and there aren't very many uh, left going on at that time on a Saturday. Um, you know, you stop and take notice and, and start paying attention to the Linfield Willamette game, and then it got close really quickly. And you f- and, and I, I kind of figured they were going to escape. They were going to figure out a way to, to get it back. And uh, and you know, to will to Willamette, they, uh, they 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 never let them get back in. You know, it's it's one of those things where you just I pretty much assumed that Linfield was first of all because I literally I looked away for like a minute. And went back to uh, writing stuff for the front page and maybe looking for a Willamette photo. And then, bam, it was a three-point game again. And I thought, you know, this is where 
elite teams take over, right? For example, Mary Harden Baylor had just done it, you know, hours earlier. Uh, they were down at the half against Harden Simmons, and then they scored 28 points in the third quarter to put that game away. Uh, Bethel was down against Gustavus Adolphus and came back and won that game. And I really just thought that uh, that Linfield was going to go ahead and do the same thing. There are points in in a season where really good teams get away with a, a sort of bad game and or or they can you know maybe a half three quarters they can play poorly and then they somehow find a way to claw out a victory and it happens season to season with with really good teams you know and and this is one of the reasons why we we are so amazed sometimes at Whitewater and Mount Union and, and Wesley because they almost never have that bad game but uh you know good teams tend tend to do that and it really got crazy at the start of the fourth uh, in, in this game here. Willamette uh, scored at the end of a 12-play drive. They go up 24-7. And really, that, sh- that should have been the point, I guess, where we started taking that game seriously. And then Linfield scores two plays, uh, pass from Riddle to, to Charlie Poppin. And Willamette doesn't take them but one play to score, you know, to come right back, 98-yard run. Uh, by Dylan Jones, and then you know it was not even another you know minute and seven seconds. Linfield down the down the uh, minute five seconds. Linfield's down the field four more plays to make a 31-21. Linfield gets the ball back quickly. Uh, one play, you know, 21 yards, and and then it's a 31-28 game. And there's still at that point in the game ten and a half minutes left. And and so earlier in the podcast when I said. You know, they they never let him get back in it. It wasn't really that they they did let him get back in it, but they they. Uh, Every time Linfield drove and had a chance, uh, Willamette came up with a play. A couple of uh, interceptions, as uh, as Keith notes. Where did you note that? I don't even know where you noted that. Uh, somewhere, I think, in our pre- in our pre conversation. That's it. That's where we talked about it. Uh, Linfield missed, left the field goal short. Uh, Sam Riddle, who had only been picked off once all season, threw three of them on Saturday, including one of them in the fourth quarter. And uh, so Willamette. Uh, it beats Linfield for the first time since 2008. That's Linfield's first conference loss since 2008. First regular season loss since 2012. And uh, it'll be interesting to see where they end up in the poll. But, you know, when it comes to the playoffs, Keith, um, you know, they still have their destiny in their own hands. Uh, you know, they, uh, Pacific is unbeaten and alone in first place in the Northwest Conference, which is kind of a mind-blowing statistic in and of itself. But yeah, Linfield still has its uh, still has control of its own destiny here. Pacific has a chance, and we've mentioned Pacific pretty much every podcast, this being their, their big breakthrough year. Now they have a big opportunity to beat Linfield. But, but I think the interesting thing is, is the thing that we always find interesting when it comes to playoffs uh, not just who gets in, but where everybody gets sent. And you know, Linfield's already on an island as it is. And uh, in the West region, which is always a loaded bracket or a loaded stacked side of, of the bracket as it is. So now they're going to be a one-loss team. They may not be at home, uh, you know, but around or, or, or two. I mean, usually you think maybe they're home around or two. They may not be home, but one round, may, maybe none at all. 
Pacific uh, finishes out the regular season home to Willamette and at Linfield. So if Pacific goes on and uh, and wins that uh, that Northwest Conference, they'll have really earned it here the last couple of weeks, especially after struggling with Lewis and Clark on Saturday. Um, how about the Whitewater game, Keith? Uh, Whitewater, you know, they've struggled uh, now on offense for the last uh game and three quarters or so without Jake Kumaro. Kumaro, uh, you know, kind of limped off the field last week against Wisconsin Oshkosh, did not play on Saturday against Platteville and, you know, Whitewater, so they went ahead and they won that game in kind of Whitewater-y fashion, but uh, looked a little, uh, I guess, a, a little questionable on offense the last couple weeks. You know, Jake Kumaro is their, their best player. On, on offense and you lose your best player it changes um changes what you do i mean he we saw him in, in the stag bowl last season you know i don't know if dominate the game is is right but as a you know a six five wide receiver a guy who can go up and, and get passes he can he can take short passes um and, and make something happen with it he, he pretty much um has the uh, the body type I think to do whatever he wants in in D three and that's a big loss for that offense. They do have a experienced quarterback, but on other parts of that offense they don't have quite the same experience. So I think that's a big loss for them offensively. And I think they're good enough on defense, uh, on special teams, on generating turnovers where they can get by with seventeen or twenty four points as we've seen the past two Saturdays. Yeah, and you know, Platteville did put up uh, 247 passing yards. Bryce Coringa did. That's not any different than they did last year, though. Uh, and they still have, uh, you know, Whitewater has. If you, if you count up the number of points Whitewater has allowed in conference games this season, you actually don't really need uh, very many hands to do so. Let's see, seven. I, if I could uh, add faster, it would be great. It looks like 24 points in their five conference games uh, under a touchdown a game. They've, you know, even if they might get a few yards put up against them the last couple of weeks, they still have uh, been keeping teams off the scoreboard. Yeah, and and, and that's kind of what they're best at, to be quite honest, at this point. You know, and and they'll they'll go. I don't I don't know if conservative offensively is the right word, but they're Whitewater's not a spread team. They're not going to throw a bunch of crazy. Uh, screens and and you know double pirouette in the end zone plays at you. They just line up and and run it down your throat. They had 243 rushing yards against Platteville on Saturday, and so in games when they don't have their offensive game breaking player, uh, they know they have a solid defense. They know they they once they get ahead, they put it puts so much pressure on the other team to try to score because they barely can score at all to begin with. That, uh, you know, at a point in this game very early in the fourth where Whitewater's up 17-7 to a lot of teams, 17-7's not a, not a big lead, a game's still in doubt. But for Whitewater, that's a pretty comfortable lead, and they were able to, to bleed it out in the fourth quarter. But the Mary Harden Baylor game, uh, really not tuned into this game until I saw the halftime score and saw Harden Simmons up fourteen ten. You know, you know these are also teams that are uh, pretty big rivals. Similarly, uh, Platteville and Whitewater play for a Memorial Trophy. They're fairly big rivals as well. Uh, Willamette and Linfield are huge rivals uh, in uh, in Oregon, uh, but. I was just kind of surprised that uh, Mary Harden Baylor had such a slow start, and that uh, not surprised so much with the way the third quarter went. Well, you should have read triple tape because some wise man picked that this game might be close for a while. Um, and I, I sh- obviously am being facetious there because I even in the, in the pick I said you know that 
Uh, it doesn't have to be that close for this to be surprisingly close because Mary Harden Baylor just come off, came off that, that dominant 72-16 win over Texas Lutheran. But I think the big difference between Texas Lutheran and Mary Harden Baylor is that Harden Simmons has, has consistently uh, played UMHB pretty well. And um, I don't, you know, if there's a team in the conference uh, or a team that used to be in the conference that isn't intimidated um, by by the Crusaders, it probably is the Cowboys. And we saw, you know, on Saturday, it was a 14-10 game at the half. And then Mary Harden Baylor kind of does what it does. They they took control of the game. They scored on, the, on an 86-yard um, touchdown pass in the on the first play of the second half. They later in the in the quarter they uh, they put up two touchdowns pretty quickly. Hunter Schmidt caught a touchdown pass from Zach Anderson, and then Dana Taylor had an interception return, and uh, that sort of broke the game open. Gave Mary Harden Baylor a 31-14 lead. They scored again uh, before the third quarter was over, and uh, sort of you know, pulled away from there in that one. At one point, it was 41-21. So Mary Harden-Baylor had that one pretty comfortably in hand. But I thought that game was somewhat emblematic of the way this Saturday was. There was a point in each of these games where, uh, I shouldn't say each, but in so many of these top 25 games, obviously we mentioned, you know, Linfield, Concordia, Moorhead, Stevens Point, Hampton, Sydney all lost. Uh, that was that's four ranked teams that lost. There was a point where Mount Mount Union was tied at seven. Uh, Wheaton had a one point game. Bethel was was struggling with uh, with Gustavus. Mary Harden Baylor was trailing. Whitewater was trailing, and it was just a much more interesting Saturday this week, bouncing from game to game than it was the previous Saturday. Wheaton was uh, it was a one point game. Uh... But it became a 15-point game six minutes before halftime, so I'm not uh, sure how close a game that was. But that's actually where my game ball goes. That goes to Wheaton quarterback Johnny Peltz. Uh, he accounted for amazing eight touchdowns in the 56-20 to win versus Elmhurst. Four of them through the air, four of them on the ground. Peltz completed 18-22 for, uh, passes for 289 yards and four touchdowns, and he had 16 carries for 129 yards and four scores as well. So, you know, we talked before that Wheaton quarterback job has kind of rotated around a little bit this season, but uh, I dare say uh, Peltz has locked it up after the, uh, by this point. Yeah, and uh, my game ball goes to Willamette's Nick Brickus. Uh, Linfield quarterback Sam Riddle had thrown uh, only two interceptions all season coming into the game, and Brickus had uh, two picks, both at important points during the second half when the Wildcats were storming back. And we I, I forgot to mention this earlier on when we were talking about Linfield's comeback. They did have a point in the fourth quarter where they uh, lined up to kick a field goal that would have tied it and, uh, and missed that field goal. So that, that played a big part in it as well. I think my team on the rise this week is Platteville. Uh, I can see the Pioneers kind of holding in place, or at the very least not falling anywhere near as uh, as far as a loss might otherwise send them. You know, we've talked about teams going anywhere from, you know, 9 to 12 spots for a, a bad loss or, you know, a non-good loss. Um, so there just isn't enough happening above them in the poll this week, and Linfield is not going to fall below them, so... Uh, with uh, some losses below the Pioneers in the poll. I, I think there are going to be some people who think that, hey, losing to Whitewater isn't as bad as losing to Bridgewater or Oshkosh. So I could see the Pioneers at the very least treading water. And remember also that uh, wisconsin Platteville already took a, a, a loss of a few spots in the poll last week uh, because of the way that uh, uh, Stevens Point played and, the, um, and I think the way that North Central played last week as well. So uh, I think Platteville might have already lost the spots that they might already have lost this week. If that makes any sense at all, go ahead and try to diagram that sentence and send it out to me. 
Pat, I'm, I'm pretty I'm pretty similar to where you are as far as my riser being more of a water treader. Uh, I'm, I don't think I'm I'm not too big on bashing other rankings and polls, at least not overtly. But I, but I do like to praise our poll, the D3Football.com uh, top 25, for being able to see past wins and losses just by themselves. Uh, and I don't think there's anywhere up, as you said, for, for Platteville to go. Linfield will probably find its soft landing somewhere ahead of number 16. And there aren't any teams below Platteville who are going to jump up since that's where most of the losing on Saturday happened. 18, 20, 22 all lost. Uh, but but 17-7 against Whitewater means something. You know, you, you could put the Pioneers in their one loss right up with, say, Bethel and their one loss, given that they each also have some key wins as well. Remember, as Pat loves to say, it's not just about who you lost to, but who you beat. And, you know, the more I hear these uh, the, the D1 folks start to discuss um, what selection committees do, and I, I find myself wanting to yell that at the television. Um, you know, going back to the, the point, though, who has, say, like Wittenberg or Johns Hopkins or Hobart beaten that's as good as playing, you know, staying within 10 points of, of Whitewater? So I think as we evaluate Platteville here, we have to take who they played into account. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. I don't think there's a, uh, I don't think there's a, a team on any of those schedules. Uh, I'm not opposed to bashing other rankings or polls necessarily but uh we'll give it a rest this uh this week i think the uh i think the schedule and the results really played it out as well uh as uh, about about as we thought it would maybe even more so than we thought it would um and then the the uh the computer ranking on uh on saturday that popped out with amherst number one anybody who does a computer ranking of division three and doesn't disconnect the nescac is not worth paying any attention to so i wouldn't have singled that other i wouldn't have uh retweeted that usually just uh you know just to in this case to show how you have to disconnect those teams because they don't play anybody in the rest of the pool my team that'll take a fall, I don't like to necessarily single out teams who lose here, but in most cases, teams that lose are going to go to fall at least a little bit. But what I want to talk about is uh, Concordia-Moorhead and the way the MIAC has been shaking out the past few weeks. So St. John's has been you know, kind of locked in place one spot below Concordia for several weeks now because of the Cobbers head-to-head win over the Johnnies early in the season. But now after a second loss, I'm sure that link is going to be broken. So I wonder if there might not be some pent-up upward movement for St. John's in this case now that they don't have to be uh, held in, and locked in place against Concordia Moorhead. Well, I think uh, number 21, Delaware Valley, probably should take a fall after needing a 39-yard missed field goal to hang on to beat Kings. But the Aggies, just like Platteville, they, they might actually hang in the same place because number 18, 20, 22 all lost. And I'm not sure how closely voters pay attention to how teams that win get it done. Good teams often have their one stinker per regular season where they have to claw to beat a team, and, and we give them credit for being able to do that. And some teams also have their nemesis. Remember, DelVal lost to Kings last year at home. But in this case, the Aggies probably took their feet off the gas after they went up 17-0, and then they let Kings back in the game and had to hang on to, to win that one. I also think Linfield's loss, I think that devalues the result that was propping number 24 Chapman up, but they'll probably also move, move up a little bit. Uh, as a result of all the losing around them, and probably deservedly so, we, we've been. We, I, I think it's been slow. Voters been slow to get behind Chapman, but of course we'll see them play Redlands here and uh, over the final couple weeks. Also, you know, Linfield obviously will will fall uh, after their loss, but they'll land much higher than uh, Chapman. So Chapman's only loss will still be to a team in the poll. 
I don't know um, enough about this game at the moment, Keith. I was just wondering. I, I heard about weather up at uh, the Kings Delval game. I don't know about that, but I wonder about the the Linfield Chapman result that you mentioned. So Linfield beat Chapman by seven, and after this week, they're going to be a lot closer together in the polls. Is I'm not sure that win is or that loss is propping Chapman up. I, I think that maybe Linfield just was really far away from Chapman, and now I think the correction might bring them closer together. I'm not sure if the answer is. To move Chapman down, I think the answer is uh, Linfield might come a little closer, and that's already going to happen. Possibly. I, I think that's a valid point. I'm going to talk about off the beaten path for a second because I spent most of the weekend off the beaten path, starting at uh, Friday night at Berry College in Georgia and uh, finishing it on Saturday afternoon in uh, in Conway, Arkansas. I was like, where am I? In Conway, Arkansas, where uh, Hendricks uh, lost to center. So center remains unbeaten. Um, I saw, you know, I guess more than half of the uh, Southern Athletic Association play in the span of 24 hours. Um, you know, that'll change next year with two new teams in the league. But uh, just an interesting weekend, especially because on Friday night it was as the news was breaking that that conference wasn't getting an automatic bid. And Jay Gardner, who's the uh, commissioner of the uh, conference, was at the game on Friday night and uh, found out from us, found out about it on Twitter uh, when uh, he had been told that he was going to get a final word from the folks at the NCA on Monday about that. So just kind of an interesting uh Couple of games, um, the you know the, for uh, you know for for Barry and, and for Hendricks, they're both really young programs. But for Barry, is a game where they kind of wore out in the fourth quarter, and you can find uh, we have a, a whole conversation with Tony Kincheski about that uh, on the website, and it will be at the bottom of this page where we have the uh, where we have the post game show, all the uh, highlights and post game interviews and stuff from games from this week. So we talk about that, and then I talk about, uh, you know, being a second-year program also with Buck Buchanan, the head coach from Hendricks, because his uh, program is in the same situation. Uh, for center, however, you know, they're in a different situation. They're unbeaten. They're 8-0. and uh, They held on after Hendricks uh, charged at them in the third and fourth quarter. So, you know, even though the conference doesn't have an automatic bid, this season, if center finishes the season unbeaten, doesn't matter if they have an AQ or not. And uh, here's what uh, Coach Andy Fry had to say when I talked to him about that after the game. Well, it didn't affect us at all. Actually, uh, you know, we emphasize like most coaches, it's always the next game, and really, we're in the driver's seat, so you got to win. If we don't win, I, you know, I, in a way, I almost feel like, well, do we deserve to be there? So center. 8-0, have a decent shot of going 10-0. They have a, uh, you know, two games left this season in which they play Birmingham Southern and Millsaps. And I will close my weekend in the SAA with this. So Barry plays in the stadium that recently hosted the NAIA title game for a couple years. And I was asked on Friday night if I would trade it for Salem. And, and really, honestly, no, not for a minute. Uh, Salem Stadium is a bigger stadium. Two permanent grandstands, better parking for tailgating, much better on-site locker rooms, better team and media facilities, you name it. Uh, we have the Superior Stadium in Salem for Division Three, much better than what the NAIA was playing in when they were in Rome, Georgia for a couple years. So I felt really good when I walked into that stadium and saw what it looked like, and I thought, oh, Division Three beats this hands down. Well, I don't know if uh, Montclair State is quite as far off the beaten path as, as you are, Pat. But uh, that's, this is my off-the-beaten-path highlight. 
Uh, Montclair State has a, a second player this season, believe it or not, joining the four interception club, the, the very exclusive uh, four interception club. Not as exclusive as the five interception club, though, although we've also had somebody join that this year. Uh, Red Hawks, CJ Conway um, in, the, in their rally to beat Cortland State. 30 to 20. Uh, Conway had a big pick at the end of that game. He actually put the final touchdown on the board for Montclair State. They stay in front in the end, Jack. Uh, I have to acknowledge uh, Conway's big day because the other player who did it, uh, Eric Gargiulo from, uh, from Montclair State, he also had a pick on Saturday that gives him nine this season. And while we're on the subject of prolific interceptors, uh, Whitewater's Brady Gravold had a goal line pick for Whitewater uh, on Saturday against Platteville, and that gives him 11 in his past 13 games dating from last season. Keith, that four interception club can't be too exclusive. I mean, you're in it. Ah, uh, well, I mean, you know, only like 10 people a year join it in, in all divisions. That's, you're right, it's not too exclusive. My most surprising result, you know, other than like the Willamette Linfield game, which we've already talked about, I think I have to go with how Bridgewater dominated Hampton Sydney on Saturday. Um, you know, Hampton Sydney's been known to lay an egg before. See last year's game versus Shenandoah, which we've talked about on a couple of podcasts already this year. Um, but Hampton Sydney gave up a kickoff return for a touchdown to go by two scores right out of the locker room in the second half, and then they weren't really even in the game after that. Uh, as with uh, when. HSC lost at Wabash. It kind of seemed like the Tigers had trouble protecting Nash Nance as the Tigers gave up five sacks and ten tackles for loss. And by the way, last year's Shenandoah loss came in, uh, loss to Shenandoah came in the same spot right before the game against Guilford. 34-9 Bridgewater beats Hampton-Sydney by. That's just a surprising result for me. Well, I'm glad you said trouble protecting and not uh, pounded Nash Nance. Of course. Uh, well, hey, how dare I say that? You no, know, uh, 25 minutes into an hour-long podcast, how would I say that? That would be like a headline or something. Um, here's a surprise result. Curry um, beating Western New England uh, 7 to nothing in overtime on a touchdown pass from a sophomore quarterback to a freshman wide receiver. That's Michael Hearn to Rocco Legale for Curry's first win of the season. Remember, Curry for a long time was the uh, was the NFC powerhouse, and that was when that was a 14-16 team league. Western New England, of course, had been uh, anticipating a shot at trying to salvage a three-way tie for the conference title if the MIT Endicott result broke the right way. Uh, they maybe got caught looking ahead, but they also got caught in the uh, what the Curry website described as a persistent windswept rain. Uh, which also maybe explains the 7-6 Amherst Trinity score, not not far away from that one. Western New England, kind of like some other teams we've mentioned today already, uh, they missed a 27-yard field goal try in the final three minutes of that game, which uh, which allowed the game to go to overtime. Western New England had been unbeaten two weeks ago. Curry, of course, was winless until overtime on Saturday. Yeah, that is, I would say that has to be one of the most surprising results of the season. Uh, I, I don't know, you know, how if they're far enough apart in uh, Massey, for example, you know, Massey always gets this great uh, computer-generated list of results that are surprising because it can dig through and not just say, hey, it's surprising that number 45 beat number 5. It's also surprising that number 189 beats number 102 or something like that, right? So I don't know if that'll be on the I don't know if that'll be on the list, but it sure it sure looks surprising in that in that kind of sense. Yeah. Uh, my stat of the week 
Uh, Austin Duncan ran for 193 yards and a touchdown as Hamlin edged St. Olaf on Saturday. And if you're from outside the MIAC, you probably don't know anything about Duncan, unless you read really closely the D3Football.com All-West Region third-team running backs last season. Uh, He's run for 1,106 yards this year, and that includes 121 yards versus Bethel, 135 on St. John's, and 102 on St. Thomas. This is a guy who's not just running it up against the uh, against the bottom of the MIAC, and Hamlin is in that group. Uh, he's he's putting hard yards together against some of the uh, elite teams and contenders in that conference. So Austin Duncan, remember the name. He's just a junior. He's run for uh, 3,434 yards in his career. You know, and that happens quite a lot, Pat, where a really good player or a really good group of players gets stuck on a mediocre team or a bad team. And, and of course, uh, as is human nature, we end up talking about the winning teams so much more and giving a lot more attention to those teams. But there are really a lot of good players like Austin Duncan uh, across the country. I'm glad you pulled that one out. For stat of the week, Wesley's win over College of Faith was just full of of these ridiculous stats. Uh, Wolverines returned three fumbles for touchdowns in the first quarter. Uh, the Saints fumbled 11 times in the game. They lost six of them. They had eight, turnover, eight turnovers total, uh, no first downs. Wesley scored 62 points while running just 36 plays and gaining just 168 yards. They only had seven first downs. In fact, Wesley's most impressive work might have been limiting itself to three second-half points after leading 59 and nothing at the half. The Wolverines only threw five passes in the game, and they attempted field goals. Um, when they got close to scoring in the second half. And, and, and to be quite frank, it was, it was a wasted game for one of Division Three's best teams taking on a brand new Bible college that offers online degrees. This is potentially one of Wesley's best teams, and I'm, I'm judging from having seen them way back in week one against Thomas Moore. But, you know, for a program that's been elite for about a decade, you know, we'll never know if, if this is one of their better teams if they don't get tested. And uh, they, they wanted into the NJAC for a while, and they finally will get that wish beginning next season, which means we can avoid absurd games like this, which don't which wouldn't even help Wesley as much as, say, a blue-white scrimmage would have helped him. Um, Wesley has an off week, and then they face the FCS Charlotte, and then they're free from crazy scheduling. I tell you, anything that we've said about College of Faith so much uh, so far is more than I would have wanted to say at all. Uh, so I don't really want to add anything more to that, uh, except to say if you want to know more about the quote-unquote college of faith, um, the folks on Reddit uh, in the college football conversation there have done a really good uh, job of exposing what a sham that, that program and that school is um, because, you know, frankly, uh, it's uh, it doesn't even really seem like a school. They haven't scored any points all year. It's just... I'm saying too much now. Moving on, let's talk about predictions. Um, you mentioned uh, you mentioned one of them earlier. Uh, I thought we had a pretty good week, actually. Uh, the games of the week were all pretty good, uh, more or less. Uh, top 25 upsets. Yeah, we we hit the top 25 upsets. Uh, Keith uh, picked Concordia Moorhead. I know that I have picked Concordia Moorhead to beat St. Thomas at least twice in triple take, and it's never materialized. 
Um, so I'm glad to see you picked uh, St. Thomas to beat Concordia Moorhead, and uh, that worked out. Seventh season in a row. Uh, this was a 59-yard touchdown pass to Charlie Dowdle, 12 seconds after the Cobbers had taken a 32-28 to lead late in the game. Ryan Tips picked Carol McAllister as the game of the week, and it sure was uh, you know, uh, something that was riveting. Uh, especially if you're a fan of the other poll. Uh, Ryan picked Linfield not to duplicate the big numbers, and the, uh, that certainly played out. Uh, Keith picked Stevenson. I uh, I picked Thomas Moore not to uh, uh, repeat big numbers, and they did that. You picked surprisingly close for Mary Harden, Baylor Harden, Simmons. Keith, I know you were kind of ragging on yourself earlier for that, but that was a 13-point game. That was surprisingly close. It, it was. I, I left a lot of wiggle room in the pick. And uh, I thought I thought Tips had a had a great week. He pretty much uh, nailed everything from from top to bottom. Whether it was the uh, you know, the Carol McAllister game or the Stevens Point pick, the Linfield pick, um, and for Concordia Moorhead and the Tommies, just some teams are, are snake bitten and can't get over the hump for whatever reason. And you know it's bad enough I think for the Cobbers that they they lose again to St. Thomas late in the season after they'd beaten everybody but Bethel and they probably have dreams of finishing nine and one and getting into the postseason. They pick up the second loss and they they did it as mentioned in excruciating fashion with that big touchdown pass to Charlie Dowdle. Worst predictions, uh, you know I'm just gonna go ahead and say uh, Louisiana College and Howard Payne. I was hoping for yet one more. Uh, um, back and forth shootout in the American Southwest Conference, and I really only got the fourth. There wasn't a lot of back as Louisiana College won 55-28. Worst predictions, uh, you know, I'm just going to go ahead and say uh, Louisiana College and Howard Payne, I was hoping for yet one more uh, um, back and forth shootout in the American Southwest Conference, and I really only got the fourth. There wasn't a lot of back as Louisiana College won 55-28. Yeah, I mean, uh, we're, we're kind of reaching for bad picks, which is the sign of a, actually having a decent triple take. But uh, but Brockport State, which I which I picked to beat Ithaca, uh, that that didn't happen at all. I kind of acknowledged it in the pick, but I, but also part of that was just saying, well, you know, the Empire eats crazy, so what you think is going to happen is probably not going to happen. And and I tried to outsmart myself with that one, and, and it did, didn't happen. And uh, Ithaca did beat Brockport State. Continuing to wrap up Week 9 in the 2014 Division Three football seasons, we go ahead with the flash drive, uh, which is our lightning round, which is our two-minute drill, except we try to do two-minute drills for the rest of it, so this is our 15-second drill. For example, in which Manchester rallied from a 31-0 deficit by scoring 37 unanswered points to take the lead versus Rose Holman. However, Rose Holman engineered, or I'm sorry, they fight and engineered a drive to go 76 yards in a buck 23 and kick the extra point with 43 seconds left to go uh, to win 38-37. I say fight and engineered because we occasionally say engineers on the site and then somebody will email us and say, hey, we're the fighting engineers. So yes, you fight and engineered uh, a game-winning drive. Congratulations, Rose Holman. That, that's so far, that's my favorite moment on this podcast. Uh, so the Empire 8, um, Ithaca and Brockport, we, we mentioned that result. There was course craziness there was a great around the nation done by, by tips this week uh which started with the lead uh proving that every team could actually beat every other team in the conference right there was a, a, a string from brockport state and went through all the teams in the conference and ended up back on brockport state the craziness st john fisher also beat buff state on saturday alfred beat salisbury so that leaves the cardinals and bombers to play for the title next week and probably no second team with a chance to get in the postseason which the empire 8 has made a habit of doing unless serious dominoes fall elsewhere 
You know, the the thing that we haven't talked about as much when we talked about the SAA and the MASCAC not getting automatic bids this year is that actually kicks one pool, uh, one at-large bid back into pool C. So they're actually uh, an extra bid available that somebody is going to get uh, their uh, their season saved because of that. Uh, it won't be Tufts, but Tufts goes to four and three after you know experiencing consecutive seasons of zero and eight, zero and eight, zero and eight, and one and seven. So uh, Tufts actually finishes their home portion of their schedule undefeated. Greg Lanzillo on Senior Day had uh, three catches, uh, all of them touchdown catches of sixty-one, thirty-two, and twenty-seven yards. Keith, of all the things that we talked about when we ranked teams for kickoff and when we went over everybody's individual predictions for conferences, I don't think we ever really considered the possibility that Tufts might win four games. Now, we were kind of just figuring that this would be the year they'd break that losing streak. They did. They did. They did. Uh, Redlands, they have the best turnover margin in the country. They got three more on Saturday and a 40-3 to win over Whittier, including an Aaron Mandel 62-yard interception return right before halftime. That was kind of the backbreaker since it made it 20-0 to instead of 13-7 to in that one. We'll keep an eye on Redlands because we've talked pretty much talk Chapman exclusively when talking about the Sky Act this season, but they have a chance to, uh, Redlands has a chance to win that conference. Uh, here's one that I was uh, thinking about for stat of the week, Keith. Um, you know, Ryan Kuselek for Wisconsin River Falls. He's their starting quarterback. Only threw for 81 yards, uh, but he kicked three field goals. The last of them, a 38-yarder in overtime to list, lift River Falls to a 16-13 win over Wisconsin Lacrosse. You know, we've seen a lot of guys uh, kick field goals who you know you think you you know maybe you're kind of surprised that they're out there. Maybe they look like defensive linemen. Uh, you know, maybe it's a, a wide receiver or something. This is the starting quarterback kicking a field goal. And by the way, that sets up some pretty awesome uh, fake potential there as well. Yeah, sure it does. Hey, at St. John's, the winning with no's seems to include winning with no passing these days. St. John's was 3-for-9 passing in the win at Gustavus, and they were just 1-for-6 as a team in Saturday's win at Augsburg. Yeah, it's just it's hard to it's hard to imagine. You know, this is a team that had uh, I think like maybe one one thousand yard rusher at least in terms of regular season stats for the entire history of its football program before Sam Sura came along this year and is blowing that number out of the water now each and every week. Uh, and and now they're uh, they're just yeah exactly they're winning by running the ball six six passes uh, on Saturday at Augsburg. Uh, it would be interesting to see if they do that against Bethel on Saturday. That's one of the uh, winner-take-all games that's uh, coming up next week. Uh, Games that are going to decide automatic bids here as we start handing out automatic bids. The only 24 of them that we hand out here for the uh, 32-team playoffs for 2014. The other, uh, Keith already mentioned, St. John Fisher is taking on Ithaca. Hobart plays St. Lawrence for the uh, Liberty League Championship. And those are three games that all could uh, see teams punch their ticket to the field of 32 for next week. Yeah, there'll also be some other games that sort of effectively punch a team's ticket in. Uh, Wabash at Wittenberg, a couple of ranked teams facing off. Uh, Greenville at St. Scholastica, Chapman at Redlands. Uh, Montclair State at Morrisville State. Who had that one pegged way back in the beginning of the season as the uh, the NJAC championship game? And Pat, I'm gonna I'm gonna let you handle the uh, the Midwest Conference because it takes a a, a deft explanation. 
I'm not sure I quite have this all. And in fact, uh, I got an email from Ryan Tips uh, earlier on uh, early early Saturday evening and saying, I don't think what you have on the site is correct. And surely, uh, sure enough, it wasn't. So McAllister can clinch the North Division title if they win at St. Norbert. Obviously, winning at St. Norbert is not the easiest thing in the world to do. So uh, if they don't, uh, McAllister, St. Norbert, and, um, and Carroll end up in a three-way tie. Then the uh, tiebreaker, as uh, we know from years past in the Midwest Conference, is quarters led. Uh, and that quarters led stat is uh, something that uh, we tweeted out on Saturday evening if you didn't catch it. But uh, as a reminder, the way that it runs down entering the week, McAllister has led 14 quarters, Carroll's led 12, and St. Norbert has led 11. So let's see. If St. Norbert beats McAllister, I think they have to lead all four quarters as well in order to win that tiebreaker. Um, uh, if I, uh, That's my on-the-fly analysis for the North Division. Now for the South Division. Uh, so let's see. Uh, Illinois College can clinch it if they just beat Cornell. Uh, Cornell and Illinois College play head-to-head. If Cornell wins that game and Monmouth beats Knox, which they've done uh, several uh, millennia, no, uh, for a good number of years running, uh, then that goes into a three-way tie as well, and I do not have the uh, the tiebreakers on that. Uh, Illinois College can make it easier on everybody by simply winning that game. And then there is a uh, conference championship game, of course, in Week 11. You know, they're, uh, they're a 12-team conference now, the Midwest Conference, for uh, just two years before uh, before Carroll Bolts to join the CCI, or rejoin the CCI. So they get to play this uh, Week 11 conference title game, which is a rule that was in, instituted for Division 3, and then Division 1 took and just blew up and went everywhere with it. So that's your Midwest Conference update. Yeah, n- not not a lightning round qualifying, but uh, but definitely the first year that that conference has uh, has had the, the two divisions and has the new teams in it, it is a little... Uh, mind-boggling. We also see, have seen crazy, crazy tiebreakers, but that may be the craziest one. I think my favorite one is the three tied teams' points between them in those games. Although it it, it uh, leads teams to do some absurd things in those games. Um, Guilford has Hampton Sydney next week and Emory and Henry in Week 11. Both of those games are on the road, but they could clinch the ODAC, which is always uh, you know perennially one of the toughest teams to figure out, and got tougher to figure out on Saturday with uh, with Hampton Sydney's. Uh, big loss against Bridgewater. You mentioned the NAC. Concordia, Wisconsin uh, plays at Lakeland next week. Uh, Wisconsin Lutheran and Benedictine are also in the mix there. And then, of course, NESCAC rivalry week. Rivals, rivalries start coming down the pike next week and in week 11. Rivalry, revelry, say that 10 times faster, Daria. Uh, one head-to-head uh, title game, which uh, I neglected to mention, in the Upper Midwest Athletic Conference, uh, St. Scholastica hosts Greenville, and that's a game where a uh, winner will take all as well because the UMAC does not play in Week 11. So the UMAC will get its first round by and then play into the field of 32 uh, the week after. So this week coming up, uh, of course, we have all the usual stuff that we have, including a play of the week nominations by 5 p.m. Eastern time on Monday. Uh, SIDs, uh, the honor roll, uh, the team of the week presented by Scoutware. We need those nominations by 8 o'clock on uh, Monday as well. We'll have around the region columns, but also on Wednesday, or at least scheduled for Wednesday, the first NCAA regional rankings uh, come out as well. So keep an eye out for those. We'll have those as uh, soon as they come out. We'll have them posted because that is our indicator as to 
you know, where you stack up in terms of being an at-large team. Obviously, everybody at the moment is an at-large. There have been no automatic bids awarded, but 24 of them will be, and you want to be the top team in your region if you're uh, if you're looking for an at-large team. You want to be an at-large bid. You have to be the top team in your region to get on the board right away and get considered for one of those six bids. Keith, did I leave anything out? Uh, nothing important. We'll we'll go through all the scenarios and uh, we'll break down everything over the next couple of weeks. But if you happen to be one of the folks who listens to this podcast and, and doesn't understand uh, all the, the playoff machinations, uh, there is the FAQ uh, is, is found on our website, explains the different uh, ways the playoff works. And, of course, we'll be posting on the blog. And if you poke around on, uh, on D3 boards, there's a lot of good fan analysis of the playoff um, picture as well. He's Keith McMillan. I'm Pat Coleman. That's the Around the Nation podcast.